Last week, we featured an interview with Laura Trevelyan. She's the co-founder of a new group called Heirs of Slavery, and it generated a big response from so many wonderful Saturday Extra listeners. Laura described how a few years ago, one of her relatives typed the Trevelyan name into an academic database on British slavery, only to discover that her family owned enslaved Africans on sugarcane plantations in Grenada in the Caribbean. Since then, Trevelyan and her extended family have been wrestling with the links between the past and the present. Uh, I might add, they've extended to Ireland uh, in the last week too, but recently apologising and paying reparations to the people of Grenada. We'd gone around the island and we'd seen the estates that my ancestors had part owned and Nicole had showed me the instruments of torture, the neck braces, the whips and the manacles that were used on the enslaved. And we'd looked at the slave registers and we'd seen that more people died than were born on the estates that the Trevelyans had owned. And it was really sobering and appalling Now, when the British Parliament voted to end slavery in 1833, huge compensation was paid by the British government to slave-owning families like the Trevelyans, money which also trickled down to Australia. And this is a growing area of research that you told us you wanted to hear more about. One of the leading researchers in this area is Professor Zoe Laidlaw from the University of Melbourne, and I welcome her now. Hello there. Hello, Geraldine. Thanks for inviting us on. Look, this is all really quite revealing. It would seem that this Legacies of British Slavery database that lists who was compensated has opened up a whole new area of investigation and thinking. How important has this been in terms of making connections between the colonies and Britain? It's it's really um, opened up an, an entire new area, I think. Of course, Australian historians have been very conscious of um, our connection to Britain, um, But with the opening up of this database, you were suddenly able to put in names and find connections. And, of course, at the time that people made their claims for compensation back in the 1830s, uh, they applied as individuals and their compensation claims were uh, honoured or they were rejected. And there wasn't much more detail about them and address for you know where they'd made their claim from. But what that team in Britain did was add just enormous quantities of biographical data where they could find it uh, so that they would record if it was known that someone then went to Australia or had descendants who uh, went to Sydney or something like that. And so we've been able to use that database to open up um, some of these stories about people who were connected to slavery in the Caribbean and then came to Australia. How does it actually work, this database? Um, Well, it's available to the public um, and you can go onto the University College London's, uh, it's called LBS database for legacies of British slavery and you can put in a surname um, or more details of a person if you know them um, and just see what comes up and you might get someone who um, actually made a claim but they've added lots of other people over time as well so people who um, could have been connected with slavery in the Caribbean in other ways. Of course, it doesn't tell you every biographical detail or all the details of people's descendants. So, um, you know, you can't, there's a lot of uh, further research that's required to kind of um, understand what's going on and to make some of those connections. And that's what um, our team um, at the University of Melbourne and Western Australia have been doing. Piecing together. 
um, you know, a bit like Hercule Poirot <laughs> by the sound of it. Um, so did Britons with experience in the Caribbean or people who received compensation, this vital thing about compensation that we learn about, did they come here? I mean, it sounds reasonable. Uh, yes, they did, both. So some people came from the Caribbean to Australia, so they perhaps worked well, some of those people had been enslaved um, or their parents had been enslaved. Others had worked on plantations as managers and overseers. That's, um, others had been plantation owners and they divested from the Caribbean um, either before emancipation because they could see it was coming or at the time of emancipation or afterwards and came to Australia. But um, as Laura Trevelyan was explaining last week, there was also a lot of people in Britain who had investments in the Caribbean but weren't based there. Mm. And they also got compensation. Their investments, of course, are sometimes humans, which is, you know, um, rather chilling to think about. They received the compensation and they then either came to Australia themselves or they reinvested that money but in the Australian colonies. Yes, that was these suggestive patterns, I think you say, is what is very interesting. Um, and look, we're not going to do a sort of surprise ancestry show right now, but maybe you could tell us about some of the families or the people who did come here or who invested their money here, which is another very interesting sidebar, without emigrating. Yeah, of course. Um, and there's, there's hundreds um, that we've discovered and we're discovering more all the time. Uh, we've been focusing on some of the colonies uh, that were begun in the 1820s and 30s because it's a really good moment where people are exiting the Caribbean and then reinvesting uh, in Australia. Um, one high-profile family um, is the Burt family in Western Australia. There's actually a federal electorate of Burt. Mm. And Archibald Burt um, came, his father had been uh, in the Caribbean um, and there'd been a long history of Burt's there owning plantations and things. Uh, and he was trained as a lawyer and a judge and he came to Western Australia in the uh, early 1860s and he did things like he started trying to grow sugarcane, for example, uh, near Perth, um, and he became very prominent. He was the um, senior judge in the Supreme Court of Western Australia. His descendants have stayed in Western Australia. And become very uh, senior judges too. Very senior judges. One indeed was the um, uh, Sir Francis governor. Sir yep. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, he didn't bring very... Um, you know, that's just one story. We've got lots of people who leave the Caribbean or investments in the Caribbean and come to Australia and become pastoralists. Uh, what about James Sterling, who set up the colony of Western Australia? Well, absolutely. The first governor of Western Australia, James Sterling, when Western Australia starts as the Swan River Colony in 1829, um, Sterling's family, Sterling had been in the Navy. His family had been connected to... Uh, the trade with the Atlantic for generations on both his mother's and his father's side, um, and they were but they were in quite dire financial straits. He came from a large family, uh, and he came to Western Australia. Um, it was a sort of a private company that really set up Western Australia with the authorisation of the British government, and they were hoping to make make their fortunes um, and some of the money they brought with them to do that. The capital came from the Caribbean. We have families that arrived in 1829 in Western Australia um, that had been 
in Demerara where they had uh, plantations and worked on plantations. They move into Perth's hinterland, into the Avon Valley. Um, and Avon, we say in WA. Avon. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> the Avon Valley. You can tell this is a national project. Yeah. I'm the, the Melbourne branch. Um, but they, with the capital they bring, they're given big land grants and What's really interesting to us as historians is not only following um, those families and their fortunes and looking some of them still have descendants, but thinking about some of the ideas and the practices that they might have brought from the Caribbean and from their experiences of slavery. So we see those early families thinking about how are they going to have labourers to work their land um, and they are interested in all sorts of things, bringing indentured labourers from other parts of the British Empire. How are they going to try and compel that already taking uh, traditional owners' land, but might they be able to compel those traditional owners to work for them? Um, can they bring out orphans? Is from that the actually UK? articulated? Uh, well, they don't say because I've been in the Caribbean, I'm going to do this. But they these are leading figures behind a whole series of schemes for bringing in different types of labour forces that we would call unfree, not enslaved necessarily, but not really free either. Um, and their prominence in those societies that are, and arrangements to bring in those labour forces are very strongly suggestive that um, at the least they'd got the idea or the expectation that you could make other people work for you in very poor conditions and for little or no money from their experience in the Caribbean. Has this been obvious in Australian history or just obscured or just not really tapped? How would you describe it? Uh, some of it has been hidden deliberately. Some has been there in plain sight, but we haven't thought about it. Um, some of it, of course, I have colleagues, uh, Emma Christopher, is one of the historians working on Queensland where there is a history of kind of more explicit um, practices bordering mm. on slavery in terms of the indentured South mm. Sea Islander labour trade and so on. So that stuff's been very well known. But, I mean, I live in Melbourne, as you can tell from my <laughs> pronunciation of Western Australian names, but here um, just in the last couple of years, uh, one of the local government authorities, now Merribeck, changed its name from Moreland um, because it was realised or recognised or it became important that Moreland was named uh, by an early settler for his grandfather's estate, his sugar estate, which had enslaved workers in Jamaica. Now, even on the street signs of Moreland before um, this became controversial, it, it actually had a little potted history of that and it said Moreland is named for Far. Parkwa McRae, the early settlers, grandfather's estate in Jamaica. But it wasn't something that had been really remarked upon or considered to be important until the last few years, I would say. So mm. sometimes those histories, are they're not hidden at all. We just don't see them. I mean, it's interesting um, what reading the material you provided us with that that sense that quite a lot of people with the compensation uh, that they got, some of them had, as you say, lost their well small fortunes, sometimes very very big fortunes, but they they suddenly saw an opportunity in the new colonies in Australia to re to reassert themselves. So, so they so they were quite enterprising people. It has to be said. It's just that they had they had some uh, rather awful things in in their past. And I was thinking of the particularly the Victorian goldfields. I bet that brought a lot of people out because 
uh, that's why I learned on a on a trek through in the summertime. Just that was I think we had a sevenfold rise in our population with the Victorian um, gold rushes. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, colonisation in Victoria starts in the mid eighteen thirties, and we see uh, one wave of um, people with money from compensation money from slavery or backed by investors in Britain who have compensation money. Some of the biggest pastoral estates are started uh, in the Western District of Victoria with cons- by consortia of Scottish merchants who trade to the Atlantic, for example. But then the gold rush brings another wave of uh, immigrants, as you say. It was also a time where some of the people who'd stayed on in the Caribbean, you know, they might have um, been compensated for their enslaved workforce. The economy was going quite badly, but they stayed on. But then it got really bad just about the time the Victorian gold rushes were starting. So at that point, they come to Australia, sometimes bringing not enormous amounts of capital, um, but just enough to get them going. And so it's not necessarily that, you know, always there were huge flows of money into the Australian colonies, but sometimes it was both the idea that there was an empire there and if one your sort of life in one part of the empire didn't work, you could move on mm. to another part. And it was just facilitated in some cases by um, those payouts. They weren't all enormous like the Trevelyan family. Well, look, um, thank you very much indeed. And if people, again, tell me how they get onto the site if they want to. Um, well, you can look at the database by um, Googling the University College London Legacies of British Slavery Project. That will take them to it. Mm. And the work that we've been doing, we have a website. Uh, if you Google Australian Legacies of British Slavery, you'll come to that as well. And there's lots of um, new materials, for example, We're writing biographies of some of these people and putting them in the People Australia website, which is um, attached to the Australian Dictionary of Biography. And all of that's available freely online. Oh, loads for people to do. I remember seeing Richard Roxburgh, the actor, do a Who Do You Think You Are, where he discovered that his actually ancestors had been marvellous people in the Caribbean, really o- operating on behalf of the slaves, trying to, his, you know, forebears. Uh, he was quite stunned by it all. So it's not all bad <laughs> waiting in well, this. <laughs> it's, it's not all bad, although we have chosen to emphasise often those stories as opposed to the bad ones, I think. Okay, look, thank you very much indeed, Zoe Laidlaw. Lovely to have your company. Thank you. Uh, Zoe is a professor of history at the University of Melbourne. Her primary expertise lies in the 19th century history of the British Empire. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.